You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, It's the news that should have been bigger. It's certainly news that would have had people dancing in the streets in San Francisco, New York City, Chicago, basically every city with a big gayborhood. End to AIDS in sight as huge study finds drugs stop HIV transmission. That was the headline in The Guardian. The report is about a new study. Researchers in Europe followed 1,000 male couples where one partner was HIV positive and one was HIV negative. And the HIV-positive partner was taking antiretroviral drugs and had an undetectable viral load. That is, no virus detectable in the HIV-positive partner's blood at all. There were no cases of transmission of the infection to the HIV-negative partner during sex without a condom, the report in The Guardian continued. Although 15 men were infected with HIV during the eight-year study, DNA testing proved that those men who did get infected, it was because of sex with someone other than their partner who was not on treatment. This study confirmed something that other studies pointed to in mountains of anecdotal evidence also pointed to. Undetectable equals uninfectious. As Professor Allison Roger of the University of College London, who co-led the study, which was published in the Lancet Medical Journal, told The Guardian, this very much puts the issue to bed. Our finding provides conclusive evidence for gay men that the risk of HIV transmission with suppressive ART, antiretroviral therapy, is zero. The success of the medicine means that if everyone with HIV were fully treated, if everyone with HIV had access to antiretroviral therapy, there would be no new infections. The goal of every AIDS organization and HIV AIDS activist over the last 35 fucking years, there's just one hitch. We may have it in our power to end HIV, to prevent all new infections, but to do that, We have to treat every person with HIV. We have to make these life-saving HIV-ending drugs available to the nearly 40 million people living with HIV-AIDS worldwide, 1.1 million of whom live in the United States. 25% of people with HIV don't know they have it. So we'd need to institute a universal testing program to identify everyone with HIV and then get these drugs, these expensive drugs, to every man, woman, and child currently living with HIV, many of them black, many of them poor, many of them, millions of them, living in Africa. You know, I'm one of the people who would have been dancing in the streets at this news some years ago, but yeah, I read about this study and it didn't inspire me to get up and dance. We have it in our power to end HIV, but will we? We had it in our power to eradicate the measles. We actually said that we had eradicated the measles in 2000, And we fucked that up. Thank you, anti-vaxxers. We have it in our power to get off coal and oil and switch to clean and renewable energy sources. But will we do it? I have a feeling that the oceans are going to be lapping at the coast of Iowa before we get around to that if we ever do. We have it in our power to ban assault weapons and hunger to get clean drinking water to the people of Flint, Michigan, to eliminate the Electoral College, impeach Donald Trump. What we don't have in almost all these cases is the political will. And the fight to end HIV-AIDS has always been a political battle. We've made great strides. We've come a long way, babies. But I didn't read the study in The Lancet, the risk of HIV transmission through condomless sex in zero different gay couples with the HIV-positive partner taking suppressive antiretroviral therapy. Final results of a multicenter prospective observational study published May 2019 edition. 
I didn't read the results of that study and think, we are going to do this. I didn't share the co-author's optimism. This powerful message can help end the HIV pandemic by preventing HIV transmission, Professor Roger told The Guardian. I looked it up. Out of the 40 million people currently living with HIV, more than 20 million are already on antiretroviral treatment. That's huge. We're a tiny bit more than halfway to treating everyone with HIV. But it was a fight to get even halfway there. Do we have it in us to fight to get the rest of the way there? Can we find the political will and the money to eradicate HIV once and for all? And can we somehow prevent the same sort of fucking idiots who brought measles back from doing the same with HIV? We shall see, I guess. With all the fights we have on our hands right now, the fights against white supremacism, Trumpism, climate change, deforestation, plastic pollution, mass extinction, and on and on. Do we have it in us? I don't know. We're going to have to see if we have the bandwidth to see the fight against HIV through to its completion, to its eradication. But in the short run, the takeaway from the study for my listeners, something that comes up on the show again and again, sleeping with someone who knows they're HIV positive and is on their meds is less risky than sleeping with someone who thinks they're negative and might not be negative. People with undetectable viral loads cannot spread HIV. Anyone out there who rejects someone who discloses to you that they're positive and undetectable because you're afraid of contracting HIV, yeah, you're doing your risk assessments all wrong. The safest place to be, as it turns out right now, these days, if you're worried about HIV and only HIV, is in bed with someone who's HIV positive and undetectable. You are safer with someone who knows they're undetectable than you are with someone who thinks they're negative. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, the free Savage Lovecast, tons of your Q's, lots of my A's, and on the Magnum subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast, which you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. There you will find twice as much show in every show, more questions and more guests. Lori Gottlieb joins us on this week's Magnum. She is the author of the best-selling Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, and she is the Dear Therapist Advice Columnist for The Atlantic, and she joins us for Second Opinion on the Magnum. Hi, Dan. I'm calling to say that I loved, loved, loved your Having Wednesday Martin on the show. She was amazing, and it was so awesome to hear what she had to say. And I was re-listening to her for the second time today, um, and something occurred to me when she was talking about how women get bored in one to three years, and you guys were talking about, you know, getting used to your partner's floss and just like having to see all of them and there being no mystery. And it occurred to me that I wonder if any of these studies control for women usually doing more than their share of the housework and the household management and basically ending up mothering a lot of their partners because that's my experience is that I often feel like half of a caretaker to my partners and long-term relationships. And it's definitely not sexy to feel like you're cleaning up after your partner all the time. And I wonder if, if no one has controlled for that in the studies, uh, maybe you could suggest to her that the next study she do looks at if there's a lesser or the same difference between men and women's like continued attraction, if you can control for how much work, housework and management and 
cleaning and mothering the partners do. I loved having Wednesday Martin on the show as well. If you want to hear more of Wednesday, check out Chris Ryan's podcast, Tangentially Speaking, episode 346. They had a long conversation. It's really terrific. On to your question. No one's done a study that controlled for that so far as I know. It is true that a lot of couples will go into couples counseling when the woman is experiencing low libido, which gets, Wednesday would argue, attributed to factors of the relationship or their interpersonal relationship when it may just be biology and wiring that is cratering the woman's libido because she has a desire, a hardwired desire for novelty and variety and isn't getting that at home from the same guy. And maybe resentment over the apportionment of household labor compounds that and makes it worse and makes it harder for two people who are used to each other and take each other for granted and are having a hard time with desire, you know, as Esther Perel points out, it's hard to want what you already have. That's what desire is. Desire is wanting something you don't have. And when you have someone, that can complicate desire over the long haul. All that said, there are lots of cases, and this is anecdote, not data, where there are couples in couples counseling and the guy gets religion about doing his fair share or maybe does more of the household labor and she still doesn't want to fuck him because she's bored. Because it's really not about who's loading the dishwasher at what clip and who's doing the laundry at what clip. Also, it might be beneficial to look at same-sex couples and their relationships and the apportionment of household labor, which there are studies that show that when it comes to household labor with same-sex couples, they're more egalitarian. There's a fair distribution of household chores and household labor in same-sex relationships. It would be interesting then to look at desire in those relationships and whether that more egalitarian division of household labor contributes in a positive way to that couple's ability to sustain desire for one another over time. It is a rich field for study, perhaps, but I don't think a lot of studies have been done. There are, however, a lot of guys out there who will tell you they do more than their fair share at home, and that's self-reporting, and their perceptions may be skewed because the culture tells a guy that he doesn't have to do anything at home, so if he's doing just a little bit, he might feel like he's doing half or more than half. But there are lots of guys out there who report, self-report, they're doing more than their fair share, and they're female partners still aren't interested, which could point to hmm, everything else in Wednesday Martin's book about evolution, about biology, about the way women are wired and how desire works, which may have nothing to do with who unloaded the dishwasher last. Hey, Dan, I'm a late 20s woman in a fairly large city. I've never really heard you talk about this, so I'd be excited to get your thoughts. I'm wondering what you think about the etiquette of like kicking someone out uh, after you've had sex um, of your bed. So like for context, like first date, not explicitly a hookup date at all, just like, you know, not kind of date with drinks and then you sort of hit it off, we, we hit it off. And he invites me back to his, um, and we have sex. And then kind of midnight, one o'clock comes around, and he's like, you're not allowed to stay here. You have to go home. And kicks me out, and I have to go home. And it makes me feel, like, pretty disrespected. This has happened twice uh, to me, most recently tonight. And I don't know. Maybe it's, like, he was a bit older than me. Maybe it's, like, more of a thing when you're older and you, like, take your job more seriously and have to think about work tomorrow. But like, I have work tomorrow and I'd be happy to sleep there. So I don't know. Um, I wonder what your thoughts are about the etiquette of that, like uh, kicking someone out of bed after you've had sex. It's funny on the gay apps, if you're inviting someone over to have sex, you're hosting. People will ask, can you host? That means, can you have me over? I'm hosting. I can have you over. 
But there's some people out there who want to host for sex but don't want to host for breakfast. They want to wake up in the morning next to a near stranger. And that to me seems a, a bit odd. If you're going to be intimate, if you're going to swap spit and roll around in bed together naked and have sex, I feel like you can make that person an egg in the morning. But that's just me. I'm a nice person. You're just you. You've had this experience twice. Two different guys have invited you over and then made it clear after the sex that you had to go. And maybe because they were older, maybe they had high-powered jobs, maybe they had to get up early in the morning. They could have said that. They could have said that before they invited you over. They could have made that known to you that you couldn't spend the night when they invited you over. Then you could have made an informed choice, as they call it, about whether you wanted to go fuck that guy under those specific conditions. That at midnight or one o'clock in the morning, you would be pulling on your clothes and piling yourself into an Uber and heading home. And maybe you would have chosen that then and you'd be less resentful because you would have known that that's what you were signing up for. Well, you know about yourself now that it irritates you to be sent packing after you get fucked. So say that. Somebody invites you over. You're having a first date, second date, and he invites you to his, which I love that Britishism. I love that way of putting it. He invites you to his. You should say to him, is this an invite for hanging out, hooking up a couple hours, or am I spending the night? And then if he says, no, just a couple hours, I have to get up early in the morning, my secret second family is coming over, whatever it might be, and you can make an informed choice, and maybe you won't feel so resentful, and maybe he'll share reasons with you that are comprehensible, that are understandable. Like maybe he has the kind of job where he has to be up and out the door at five o'clock in the morning to get to work. Some people have those jobs. I don't know why he wouldn't mention that to you to put the get the fuck out in context. That would make him seem like not an asshole. But men sometimes have trouble communicating, just like men sometimes have trouble emptying dishwashers. Hey, Dan. Straight cis guy. My old partner and I, we were together for total of four years we broke up it'll be two years ago in august i broke up with her uh, because she was moving back to our home city uh, after she'd originally moved out to the east coast with me because i was going to school out there and i broke up with her because uh, we briefly tried doing an open thing and i thought i caught feelings for someone else and told her per our agreement and uh, it didn't go over well, and it turned out she wasn't actually voluntarily in the open relationship. Like she, she was basically a pud, as you would put it. I broke up with her. She moved back to our home city thousands of miles away, and I came to really regret it. And um, the following summer, I came back, and I think we both kind of tried to, to make things work again. And she just wasn't feeling it anymore. And I'm trying to figure out sort of how to move on because I've, I've dated plenty of people since, like I said, it's been like a year and a half now, almost two years. And I've gotten like really into some people, less into others, but there's this hole inside of me. I have a feeling that I know what you're going to say, that it's just a matter of time. And, you know, there are a billion other women in the world and you'll find one. But one of the things I guess I'm confused about is the fact that on the rare occasion that that we run into each other, that we meet up because we have to like resolve some sort of errand of or whatever, she really seems like she's just totally over it. And like she has been ever since like six months or so after we broke up where she just flipped a switch and she's she's just done. I'm just like a normal person to her. Whereas before, like 
we'd wanted to get married and she was pressing almost more for it than I was. I was more ambiguous or on the fence about it. Anyway, just want your thoughts, I guess. This is one of those circumstances, one of those dilemmas where all the cliches apply. No one likes to hear the cliches or be told the cliches. The quickest way to get over somebody is to get under somebody else. It takes time. You'll meet somebody. There's a billion other women on the planet. And you don't want to hear all that because you already know all that. And there you are still in pain. And those cliches, which I am obligated to regurgitate for you on command, are already rattling around inside your head. And what good are they doing you? None. You're in pain. Well, I'm sorry. The cliches apply. It is going to take time. The thing you want to be on your guard against is that you don't romanticize this relationship. There was a time when you were with her, when she wanted to marry. She wanted a more serious commitment than you were ready or willing to make. And you felt ambiguous about the relationship. You were on the fence when you had her. Now that you no longer have her, you feel less ambiguous. Because something you had has been taken away from you or you threw it away. You ended this relationship. And what I'm trying to tell you to be careful of is that you don't romanticize this failed relationship, this relationship in your past by aching, by tormenting yourself with these regrets. Because regret and self-torment can take an okay relationship and round it up in your memory, in retrospect, to some romance of the century, to the love of your life. It can make somebody that you could take or leave into somebody that you can't imagine living without. And it may have nothing to do with that person. Those new feelings you're experiencing about them in their absence, in the wake of the loss, and how large they now loom in your psyche can have nothing to do with the relationship itself or who they were and everything to do with your sense of having fucked up. And all the time you're spending beating yourself up about it because the cliches that I have now regurgitated for you that you knew before you called aren't a comfort that you will find in the end in a few more years time after you've met some more women after someone comes along that you can feel or will feel as strongly about as you felt, not about her when you were with her, but about her after you lost her. Someone's going to come along who makes you feel that way while she's there. Because I think what you may have learned about yourself in the wake of this relationship's demise is that you are capable of feeling strongly for someone, that you have the capacity to feel that deeply. You either didn't feel that deeply about this woman when you were with her for those four years, or you weren't able to tap into those feelings when you were with her. Only after you lost her were you able to recognize those feelings that you had for her. Or looking at it from a different angle, after you lost her, you were suddenly able to tap into this capacity to feel this deeply. And you attached those feelings to her in the wake of that loss. Not because you felt that when you were with her, but in the wake of losing her, you suddenly saw that you were capable of feeling that way about someone. Maybe about her. Again, I want to put on the ledger here. Again, I want to introduce into evidence the fact that you never felt that way about her when you were with her. You could feel it about someone. Maybe her. Maybe you felt that way about her all along. I think it's likelier, and it would be better for you to will yourself to believe this too, that what you learned is you can feel this. Didn't feel it about her. Maybe you'll feel it about someone else. Instead of projecting all of those feelings onto her, sit with them and recognize that you are capable of having those sorts of feelings for some person. 
and go find some different person that you can feel that strongly about. And I don't want to say she singular is out there. They, not that you have to be poly. I'm not saying poly. I'm just saying you have many options in the world. They are out there, women that you could feel that strongly about. So yeah, you want to get over somebody? Cliche applies. Get under somebody else. Hi, Dan and the tech savvy at risk youth. I'm calling from the Pacific Northwest and I'm a cis queer woman in uh, her late 20s. I'm calling because I have a family issue I need advice on. My uh, loving aunt, uh, who we have a great relationship together, I recently found out, well, confirmed, that her and her best friend have been carrying on an emotional affair, as well as a off-again, on-again physical relationship for the better part of two decades. My aunt and person B are very close, and I've known this woman um, since you know, I was an adolescent, and uh, we see her at all family gatherings. My aunt doesn't know that I know this. However, most of the family and friend group do know so it's very difficult being around these people, um, mostly so because person B is married and has been for over a decade. Uh, this man I also see at family gatherings, holidays and such, and I've, I've chosen to completely avoid them since I found this out because I am uh, not a secret keeping person and I know I'm just going to vomit it all out <laughs> and uh, create a lot of chaos even though I would really, really like to. <laughs> I know this isn't necessarily my place, so I've been staying out of it and kind of avoiding um, family gatherings. But my issue is here is that this man who I adore and love, who is probably not doing the best emotionally anyway, you know, has uh, really getting the short end of a stick with this woman. And I'd really like to see him be treated better. And I'd really like my aunt to be, to be treated better as well. Although I can't control this, I can't control who, when he finds out the information. I do know that this is an affair. It's not like some, some low-key open relationship thing. He doesn't know. And uh, she isn't willing to tell him. So at, the, at this moment, I know that their physical relationship is off. And they've just been continuing to be BFFs uh, who are in love. Which is so fun for them, I'm sure. But I'm wondering how I should handle this. I'm not going to be able to see them and enjoy myself and my family without spilling the tea. And I really don't want to see this man continuing to be hurt. What should I do here? Should I pull him aside and tell him he needs to speak to his wife? Should I tell, pull the wife aside and say, stop being a shitty person and making shitty decisions and treat these people better and let everybody know, let the cat out of the bag already? Or should I continue avoiding it? I mean, it's not my it's not my problem, but gosh, I really, really want to see this unfurl. <laughs> my first question, if I may, is what did you think I was going to tell you to do when you called? Usually oh. people have some idea of what I might tell them, what my advice might be. And I'm curious if, if you had some idea of what I might tell you. Um. Well, I guess I assume that you'd say, you know, stay out of it. It's you know, not your relationship, not your issue. Um, Literally none of your business. I, yeah. So I guess I just really wanted to know, I, you know, families asking why I'm not showing up <laughs> to things and what what's that all about. So, and, and what is that all about? Why are you incapable of keeping your fucking mouth shut in this context? I don't, I don't understand it. Your aunt that you claim to love has had for two decades and on and off again, physical relationship with this person who's married to someone else who's not a relative of yours, right? And not, yeah. and isn't your husband. No. <laughs> right? And this woman that your aunt's having an affair with isn't you or your spouse. Like literally, this has nothing to do with you. 
And you have no idea, no way from outside of knowing how much damage the telling of this truth could do to all of the people involved, including the person that you regard as the victim, the husband. Oh, I definitely don't necessarily think I regard her as the victim. But yeah, no, I totally acknowledge that. So is it just that you have like poor impulse control and that's your own issue and you need to speak to a therapist about it? Because you keep saying that like if you are in the same room, you're not going to be able to refrain from just exposing this affair and blurting all of this information out. If you knew that your aunt had crazy amounts of credit card debt or had done something irresponsible with her kids' college funds, would you blurt that out at a family gathering or is it just because it's sex? Uh, no, I don't think it has anything to do with that aspect of it. I think it's – uh just the fact that it's gone on so long and there's, you know, some close people I love that are getting hurt. Um, Who's getting I guess hurt? I was just, you love this, this woman that your aunt's having an affair with. You love her husband. No, no, no. I, the, you know, the husband who is obviously getting hurt and my aunt who's being treated like uh, a dirty little secret <laughs> and is herself just realizing that, you know, she doesn't want to. So she's, kind of train changing her dynamic and within the relationship. Okay. So she's, ending, so, so this relationship, there's no longer a physical relationship. Your aunt has ended this for the time being. Yeah. She's trying to, I guess. How do you know Pray all this? It. How did you find all this out? Uh, family members who she confided in friends who she confided in have told, I uh, was talking with somebody and guessed it basically. And then it was confirmed. So, um, that, that's how I found out the, the truth, <laughs> I guess. So you're just the, the Robert Mueller of this situation. <laughs> you're the independent counsel. Okay. You're, you're doing the investigation. <laughs> well, I'm definitely not trying to. I'm just, I'm not going out looking for what's happening. I'm just, I ask if she's okay. And then, you know, I'm given new information. Okay. Is all. And nothing's really changing. I was just, you know. <laughs> and and it, and why can't this information die with you? Why do you feel burdened by knowing this? Why do you feel like you have to act or have to do something? Because you can't, um, you, cause you can't just barge into these relationships under the assumption that putting it all out there and telling the truth and making sure everyone knows that your aunt had this affair and this woman had this affair with your aunt and this person was wronged is going to improve everyone's lot in any way. Yeah, I don't think it will. <laughs> I don't think it will. I guess I'm just... So this is uh, an impulse control issue of yours. If you know that this isn't your business, if you know that blurting all these truths out could do more damage than the affair itself, which is now over, did, why can't you keep your mouth shut at a family gathering? Well, there's no reason I can't, except I feel as though everybody knows except this man, and it's... It feels really shitty. <laughs> okay, maybe he doesn't want to know. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> if you're listening sure. to the show, you probably heard me cite this Esther Perel advice, which I think is really smart. The victim of the affair is not always the victim of the marriage. Yeah. Sometimes yeah, people true. are in marriages that are awful, and they have their own reasons for staying in them, and they seek what comfort they can outside of them. And yeah, that, that may, I mean, that's perfect sense. Yeah. Right. So, the, so you have no way of knowing from outside with the scuttlebutt that you've obtained, which is all framed, you know, through the, the, the sex negativity that permeates our culture and the assumption that almost everyone is prone to 
making about affairs, which is the people having the affairs are always the monsters. And the people who are being cheated on are pure victims, which is not always the case. You have no way of knowing what dynamics are at play here. You have no way of knowing who the villain in the piece is. No, that's from what I've heard. I I definitely am not assuming one is uh, a saint and one is a sinner. You know, I, it's, it's a super complicated issue and, um, Right. It's a super complicated issue that doesn't involve you. Yeah, it doesn't. And it doesn't implicate you. <laughs> and, you know, it's bad that this affair happened. It's probably somebody is getting hurt. Probably somebody was badly used. Maybe Grant was badly used. Maybe this woman's husband was badly used. Maybe she was badly used by her husband and sought what comfort she could and wound up hurting other people in that process. Maybe everybody hurt. And your telling the truth is just going to rip open everyone's wounds and freshly salt them and embarrass and humiliate all of the participants. Yeah. yeah. And do no one any good. That's correct. I agree. I guess I was just, uh, it is, it is hard to keep my mouth shut and not want to interject, even though it doesn't have to, all you have to do, to do with me. All you have to do is tell yourself, you have no way of knowing whether speaking up, is going to make it worse for everybody, including the people you think you're trying to protect. Yeah. So you're just not going to say anything. Yeah. These aren't your relationships. Should I, what's your advice on, you know, should I just do my best to avoid in, engaging about that with them? If I, if I go or should I avoid, or, I mean, I will work on impulse control. I just, you know, people are, Knowing that this is a torment to you, you know that. Like hearing all this information, you know the burden of knowing is a uncomfortable one for you. Stop trying to know everything about this relationship. Stop asking about it. If people want to talk to you about it, if people want to gossip, say, you know, I, I don't want to be a part of this. I don't want to hear it. And then you go into those encounters, you go into those family events, and you just – don't think about it. Okay. My my grandmother on my dad's side had an, had an affair with a neighbor when my dad was a kid that my dad ended up finding out about and that it was a huge sort of rupture in their relationship. And everybody knew it, that this had happened in their past, right? And I would mm-hmm. go to family okay. events with my grandma and grandpa who were still married to each other and no one would bring it up. Everybody knew about it, but there was no need for it to be discussed or acknowledged. Yeah. Because it just would have hurt everybody involved to revisit it. And yeah. it, would, it would potentially embarrass and humiliate your aunt. Not- yeah. I, I definitely wouldn't want to do it in a public setting, I guess. You know, it was more of like, if, if should I, should I let them know that I know? No, and no, 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 no. I guess no. if I was in his situation, I would want to know, you know, she, I guess. So I was just applying, applying that to myself, which isn't necessarily what everybody else would want. So you, project yourself into your aunt's experience. She's been fucking this woman on and off for 20 years. It's an affair of 20 years. On some level, she knows people probably know, but on another level, she goes into family gatherings thinking, uh, it's a comfort to not know who knows and to think maybe fewer people know. Mm-hmm than okay. actually know or to even psych myself up and suspend disbelief and just go into a family event under the assumption, under the you know comforting delusion that no one knows about this, that we've successfully kept this from everyone. 
And that contributes to your aunt's peace of mind. It makes it possible for your aunt to be a member of the family and go to these family events. And just having her nose rubbed in the fact that everybody fucking knows. Manda, mm-hmm. depriving your aunt of the comfort of her family, particularly now at this moment when she may need it more than she's ever needed it before, if indeed this affair is over and done. Yeah. Yeah, that makes I mean it <laughs> that definitely makes sense. I don't want to humiliate anybody People, or make anything worse, I guess. Then don't yeah. then Keep your mouth shut about shit that's not your business. That's how you can avoid humiliating people. I know that okay. the culture tells us that telling the truth is always the most loving option. Tell the truth. Be honest. Sometimes keeping your mouth shut and not lying, but you won't ever be in a position to have to lie about this. You're never going to be deposed about your aunt's relationships. But sometimes just keeping your mouth shut, not telling a truth that you happen to know, but that doesn't involve you, that's the loving thing to do. To not okay. be honest, to not be transparent, mm-hmm. to hold something back. And by so doing, demonstrate to others in your family that they shouldn't be gossiping about this. It doesn't involve them. And to demonstrate to your aunt that, you know, if she knows you know on some level, okay. perhaps she appreciates that you love her anyway or that it's irrelevant <laughs> or that you are courteous or considerate enough not to bring it the fuck up. Yeah. I guess I've never acknowledged that, you know, there's so much love in the safety uh, of your family and, you know, not having to acknowledge everything is good because <laughs> um, we're kind of a family that just brings everything out. Right. If everything comes out, there are no relationships. <laughs> if everything, you know, every piece of dirty laundry gets dragged out into the middle of the room, there's no loving family anymore because no family, no relationship, not even an individual relationship between two people could withstand that onslaught Mm, of every wrong being known, being discussed, being made public, every piece of dirty laundry being hung up. Yeah. People deserve their privacy. That's why we don't do it. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. People deserve their privacy. And sometimes people deserve the illusion of their privacy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I know this about you, but you don't need to know I know it. Mm-hmm. That's love. That's a hard concept for me to grasp. <laughs> I've never really, <laughs> never really. I mean, it's not love in all its forms, but it's one way that we can demonstrate that we love someone. You know, I know this thing about you. It would make it really uncomfortable for you to know I know it. So I'm just going to bury it. I'm going to stuff it down the memory hole. I'm going to pretend I don't know it. It's not relevant. I'm not going to bring it up so that you don't have to think about it when we interact. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm sure there's nothing. I'm sure she's thinking of nothing else all the time, probably for the last 20 years. So (laughs) Uh, safe spaces are important. (laughs) And she has a good relationship with you or did until you found this out. And if she wanted to open up and confide in you about it, she would have already. Yeah. Yeah. Respect her choice to keep this as private as she can. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you for the advice. I appreciate that. Permission to stay quiet. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Not a, that wasn't permission to stay quiet. That was an order <laughs> to keep your fucking mouth shut. That's different than permission to stay quiet. <laughs> Accepted. Thanks, Dan. Sure thing. Bye. Hey, Dan. I'm married. I've been married for five years. Consider myself a lesbian, but uh, since we've opened our relationship, I've been dating both men and women. Question for you. When I'm dating women, I am like, feel, I feel very casual. I don't get nervous. I don't feel like 
anxious or weird or like I've put my foot in my mouth at any point. Like it's really not something that I worry about. It's just very casual and like I feel comfortable and confident and like fine. When I go out with guys, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes like if I think they're very attractive, that isn't to say that the women that I date, I don't think are attractive. But if I am trying to date a guy who I think is very attractive, I get so nervous. And I don't know, what does that mean? I was talking to my straight friend and I was like, this is why I like dating women. I don't get really weird when I date women. And sometimes if I date a guy, I get all like freaked out. And she's like, oh, that sounds really boring to me. And kind of implied that like, I must not like women that much, but I know that's not the case. So I don't know. Thoughts? You're the lesbian out there fucking dudes but i'm the one who's going to get yelled at for playing your question i'm the one who's going to be told that by taking your question i'm encouraging straight guys to see lesbians as doable but it's not my fault it's not my fault that there are so many or many or a few lesbian identified folks out there who sometimes like to get with guys i've met some gay identified men who occasionally like to get with women i have one gay friend in los angeles who really blows up my acid test for who is and isn't gay because he likes to get with women every once in a while just to eat pussy that's it that's the only thing he really enjoys about boy girl getting it on is cunnilingus and he claims to be really good at it i couldn't tell you never ate my pussy anyway on to your question why are you at ease with women and made nervous in a way that you aren't with women by really attractive men? Not just men, but the super hot ones. Something about those guys throws you off. Well, it's sometimes the case, and I don't think this is the case here, where we're at ease, more at ease, being intimate or, or, or sexual with someone when the stakes are low because you're not really invested in a future with that person or any sort of possibility with that person. It was easier for me to be sexually active as a very young teenager with girls because I didn't care because whether they liked me or not or really wanted to be my girlfriend or not was irrelevant because I was not romantically attracted to them. But when I got with guys for the first time or at all, I was a wreck because their opinions mattered so much to me. I was really invested in wanting them to want me in this deep and profound way that I didn't really want the girls I was messing around with to want me. That meant I was gay in, in, in that circumstance. I don't think that you're being nervous with these guys means you're secretly straight. What I think is going on here is perhaps some nervousness about how you're being assessed by these guys, the male gaze, sort of a double bank shop, reverse flip male gaze where you are looking at these hot guys and intuiting perhaps subconsciously that they may be assessing you as an object in a way that you're not comfortable with or used to. When you're with women, you may feel less objectified than you do when you're with men. When you're with men who are average looking, not super hot, their opinion of your hotness relative to their hotness doesn't matter because you're the hotter one. You're the bigger get. But when you're with somebody hot, suddenly you're in competition with their objective hotness. And their assessment of your hotness relative to their own hotness may make you feel scrutinized as an object in a way that you aren't used to in your lesbian or same-sex relationships or in your relationships or your dates or your hookups with guys who are 
less beautiful than the guys who throw you off and make you nervous. Hi, Dan. I'm a 40-year-old lesbian, uh, recently divorced from my wife. I'm in a newish relationship with an amazing woman. We've been dating for about six months, and things are going really well. Sex is off the charts, best I've ever had. We're open and honest with each other about our wants and needs, both very GGG. I do have this um, lingering insecurity just from past relationships. I'm hoping you can help me out. Basically, every relationship I've ever been in has become almost sexless after some time passed and not because I stopped wanting it, not because I stopped wanting it. I've always had a high sex drive and have no problem staying attracted to my partner when I'm in a long-term relationship, but that hasn't been the case for the women I've been with. I'm a reasonably attractive person. I take care of myself and my appearance. I never let myself go in long relationships, try to always look nice and keep myself together for my girlfriends, but the sex still fades. I really, really, really want it to be different this time. What can I do to increase the chances that the great sex that I'm having right now will continue long-term in my current relationship instead of becoming sexless like it happened in the past? It's not going to continue like it is now, eternally and forever. Sex at the beginning of a relationship and RE, new relationship energy as the poly folks call it, that's unique to the early stages of the relationship, that infatuation stage, that can't get enough of that other person stage. When that person is still strange and new and risky and the sex is exciting and and dangerous in some way because you don't know this person well and you're making yourself vulnerable by getting undressed in front of them and they're making themselves vulnerable by getting undressed in front of you and you're still exploring them. They are new territory and eventually they become well-charted territory. Eventually they become known to you and you become known to them and the sex inevitably, invariably becomes less frequent and less exciting. Now you can control for that, even in the context of a monogamous relationship. You can control for that. First, by saying, by acknowledging, as passionate as things are now, that's not sustainable over the long term. There will be a drop-off at some point. Then what are we going to do? Because passionate sex is important to me. I would like to have it with you. I would like to... Figure out a way, if we're going to be monogamous, that we can keep that passion and that flame alive. And that can just mean creating obstacles for yourself. You know, early in a relationship, you're clearing hurdles to be with that person. You're taking risks. Adrenaline is pumping. You're making yourself vulnerable in front of this person with this person who could be dangerous or ableist or crazy. You never know. The person could be awful, right? And how do you build that in when they're a known quantity to you in time, when you're completely comfortable with this person. Well, they aren't the source of the danger and the adrenaline pumping, but you can get the danger and adrenaline elsewhere. You can fuck on the roof. You can fuck in your car. You can go to sex clubs and not touch anybody else, but just be in this like forbidden, naughty, dangerous environment and just fuck each other and take risks together, have sexual adventures together. Right now, she is the sexual adventure for you and you are the sexual adventure for her. That will end. She will no longer be an adventure for you. You will no longer be an adventure for her. If you want to keep the sex exciting and passionate going forward, at that point, you have to shift and go together on brand new sexual adventures. That can mean fucking other people. That can mean fucking in different times, places, dangerous places, taking certain risks, fucking in public, fucking in the park, doing whatever feels risky and yet you're mitigating for those risks so safe enough where you feel comfortable fucking there. You can do that. The other thing you have to do is not allow resentment at the inevitable cooling of your passions for each other 
that can't get enough of each other, can't keep your hands off each other thing is going to not evaporate. It's going to pass. It's going to become less intensely felt in time. And if you then resent that inevitable passing of that intensity, that can crater your sex life. That can result in the sex you could still be having and the good, comfortable, different kind of sex you could be having with your partner ending. That could take all of that sex off the table because you're so irrationally angry about the, the inevitable end of the new relationship energy sex. That's going to go away and it's going to be replaced by comforting, familiar, intimate sex, by maintenance sex, by ease of access to sex, which is a good thing and not a great thing where passion is concerned. Because if you can have it whenever you want it and it isn't brand new anymore, you may not want it as intensely or as much as you did at the outset. So talk to your girlfriend during this stage before it's a problem about when the NRE wears off, let's figure out different ways to have sexual adventures together when we are no longer each other's discrete sexual adventures. And when we're having a little less sex, let's not be angry about it. I promise not to get angry about it. You promise not to get angry about it. And we will work on having as much sex as we possibly can together because anger and resentment, yeah, that's poison. The NRE, passion sex, passes. If you allow anger and resentment to creep in, you won't be having that ease of access, maintenance, familiar, intimate sex either. And then you will be in a sexless relationship again. Hi, Dan. I'm sitting here masturbating this morning and a thought popped into my mind. Well, memory. Uh, when I was 16, probably, um, I had a guy go down on me for the first time and had literally like leg shaking orgasm that I honestly don't think I've experienced since. And I don't even know if it'd really be possible at this point. I mean, I come hard from sex frequently and have great orgasms, have great sex, but nothing that's like literally leg shaking, mind bending, like can't control my physical body like the first time the guy did have a tongue ring I don't know if that makes a difference I'm in my early 30s now so it's been about 15 plus years um since then is it possible do our genitals like go numb <laughs> or lose sensitivity over time as we age I mean everything's kind of breaking down so or is it just the newness of that first experience yeah, I don't know. Okay, thanks. I remember the first time a dude sucked me off. And I remember that orgasm. And I was shook. That felt like a world historical event. I thought chronicles should be written about that moment. Illuminated manuscript. I was shattered by it. In a way that I don't think subsequent orgasms have quite shattered me, although they're good and great and hard. There's something about the newness of that experience, also the transgressiveness of that experience in my case, because I thought, you know, if I ever got sucked off by a dude or sucked off a dude, both those things happened the same night, that the sky would open and, and a thunderbolt would be sent down from heaven by my friend God to kill me on the spot. And when that didn't happen, I thought, well, holy shit. And I thought, oh, that's not happening as I was coming. That was kind of a powerful mix right there for a poor little Catholic teenage boy. 
that's what you went through. That first time that you, someone went down here. I don't think it was the tongue ring. I don't think it was the piercing, his piercing, that made it a leg-shaking event. I think it was the first time anyone had ever gone down on you. It blew your mind in a way that your mind can't be reblown. Your body kicked into gear. You had this experience. You had that orgasm. It was a shattering world historical event. Illuminated manuscripts. Chronicles would be written. And you can't exactly replicate that experience, that first time when it's good and really mind-blowing. What you can do is continue to have new experiences. You can't get your mind blown or your pussy ate in the exact same way ever again. But you are capable of having new experiences that – take you to new levels of pleasure. Think of all the women that we've heard from on this show over the years who were orgasmic and it was great and suddenly they hit their G-spot or they were in bed with the right person who really worked on them and they were squirting and they were having a new and much more intense and different kind of orgasm that they experienced as world historical and shattering all over again. So rather than trying to replicate that first time a guy went down on you, rather than insisting that your current partner get his tongue pierced, Think about what you haven't done yet. Think about what you might like to experience. Have you used vibrators? Have you used toys? Have you gone spelunking looking for your G-spot or not? And if you haven't and there are these things that you haven't done that you are intrigued about trying and perhaps experiencing, you may have another one of those leg-shaking orgasms. Hi, Dan. So I got this ex-boyfriend. He's in his late 30s and wonderful. I'm a woman in my mid-20s. We had a two-year-long relationship, and he ended it seven months ago. Basically, a while back, I had a pretty severe mental health crisis. Um, I got treatment, but soon thereafter, I just decompensated and, and, you know, in a big way. I stopped treatment. I withdrew from friends and family. I withdrew from school. For months, all I did was watch TV in my pajamas, feeling like a worthless, unmotivated pile of absolute garbage. My boyfriend was a witness to that, and after a few months, he said that he just couldn't do it anymore. He said he was starting to feel frustrated, and he said he just couldn't wait for me to get myself unstuck and move forward with my life. Um, yeah, ouch, but understandable. Since then, I've, I've actually been doing better. I got back into therapy. I got back on medication. I got back on track with school. Um, I'll have a diploma in my hot little hands in, in a few months, and I'm working. It's not full time. It's, it's temporary, but, you know, it's, it's something. So lately, I've just been thinking about something my ex said during the breakup. He said that in the future, getting back together wasn't out of the question if I was doing better. Like, you know, basically, if I had my shit together. Oh, and, you know, provided that we were both available and had the feelings and yet together. Anyway, that's something I want to explore if he's game. So here's my dilemma. He's he's moving out of the state in a year, so it feels like the window for doing that is is you know it's closing. On the other hand, I I still don't exactly have my shit together. As of now, I, I don't have a degree or direction, and most of my meals are made out of top ramen. I mean, I'm living again, but but I'm not exactly thriving. <laughs> so. I don't know. What do I do? Do I keep working on myself and focusing on myself and reach out like months from now when that window's even smaller? Or do I just roll the dice and reach out now even though I don't completely have my shit together yet? Anyways, um, and whether I reach out now or later, like 
what do I even say? Like, how soon after catching up do I say it? Do I, like, how do I, how do I float this idea or feel now without losing faith? You know what? I'm not going to tackle this one solo. I am going to get a second opinion. Oh, oh, it's time for a second opinion. Joining me for this second opinion, Lori Gottlieb, a psychotherapist in private practice in Los Angeles. She writes the weekly Dear Therapist column for The Atlantic. And her new book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, a Therapist, Her Therapist, and Our Lives Revealed, is a New York Times bestseller. Hey, Lori, how are you? Good. How you doing? Great. Congratulations on the book. Thank you. Uh, you're welcome. Now, before we get to the question, when we have someone on for second opinion, I always like to ask them how they got into the advice column racket. Yeah. Um, well, I'm a therapist, so um, I don't give advice to my patients. And I wanted to use some of the knowledge that I have as a therapist and have a forum in which I could give people advice. So that's what I do in the uh, Dear Therapist column in The Atlantic. It is a weird thing. When you go to a therapist, you go to a counselor, and they don't tell you what to do. And people will turn to, you know, people without qualifications like me who have advice columns and advice podcasts because they want to be told what to fucking do. Yeah. The reason we don't tell people what to do is because they resent you for it. So they they might take your advice, and if it goes badly – they blame it on you, but if uh, even if it goes well, people want to have agency. They mm. want to be able to make their own decisions, and so eventually people will start resenting you for telling them what to do. I have certainly been there. All right, let's tell this person what to do. I mean, I've been resented. I, I've heard from people. <laughs> so they can resent us. Yeah, I've heard from a lot of people who took my advice and it worked, and they were very happy. And I always think about, well, there are people out there, and I've heard from a few who took my advice that didn't go well. And sometimes when people write to me and say, "Hey, I took your advice, everything went great," it was like, okay, but don't be mad at me if everything turns to shit later, because everything, anything, eventually can turn to shit at some point down the road. That's right. And often people are sort of gunning for you to take up a certain position anyway, because you're only getting one side of the story. So you've got to remember that too. I do. I try to bear that in mind. All right. Let's, uh, we've got one side of the story here. Let's jump right in there. Before we get to uh, the caller's question about whether she should, uh, in her, you know, com- shit not completely together yet stage, reach out to her ex-boyfriend. I, I want to talk about the ex-boyfriend and the position that he found himself in. You know, he's in his early 30s. He's got a girlfriend in her mid-20s. She had some mental health crisis and withdrew from school, from her family, and basically didn't get off the couch for three months. Uh, And at a certain point, he's like, you know, I can't do this. Go get your shit together. I'm out. If you get your shit together and you want to talk and I'm still single then, maybe we can reconnect. That is something that a lot of people have a difficult time doing. To, to be the partner who broke up with someone when they were really at their lowest point, but they didn't seem to be getting any better. And sometimes people think, well, maybe my presence is enabling this cratering here, this, this, this person being stuck. Maybe my being here isn't helping and it would help if I left. And this seems to be an example of it helped that the partner dumped her. Right. It seemed like when they were together, she wasn't doing anything about the fact that she was in this crisis. So it would be one thing if if she were doing something about it while they were together. But I think he was watching her for months doing nothing about it, knowing she had a problem, but not being able to do anything to change that. And I think that's where he lost his patience. People will hesitate to do that, though. You know, your, your partner, somebody that you love, you've been with for a year or two in a crisis, you're taking care of them. 
and they're not getting any better. They're just sort of flatlining along on the couch. And maybe you're taking care of them as part of the problem. It's enabling them not to go get the help that they need. But right. you don't want to make it worse by leaving either. And it, it just a lot of people in this boyfriend's position wind up sticking around for a lot longer than three months. And it's not always helpful or healthy, is it, to, to be the partner who sticks around? I think it depends. You don't want to abandon your partner because, you know, everybody goes through something. And, and if these people are to get married, you know, they're going to go through stuff in life. And you don't want to abandon somebody when they're having a difficult time. So I don't really know what his commitment was to her, um, you know, what their plans were for the future. I, you know, it's very unclear from the call about what, what was going to happen. And she's very young. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know if they talked about we're going to get married. They'd been together, I think, for a couple of years already. I would hope that they would have had those conversations by then. But he's also moving. And I don't know if that was, you know, if she was even aware of that, mm-hmm. that, you know, it, was she, if, if this hadn't happened, was she going to move with him? What was the plan then? So I don't know how much communication was really going on between the two of them. All right, let's talk about her question. So, she, they broke up. He dumped her. She went out there. She started to get some help. She's jogging. She feels like she has her shit together, not completely together, but who does have their shit completely together. And now she's wondering if she should reach back out to him. My concern when I listened to the call was if she reaches back out to him and he isn't interested or he isn't free, maybe he's dating someone else now, is that going to send her spiraling back down? Yeah, and I think also... I'm not sure that why she wants to call him at this point. I, I think part of her might think that he's the answer and he's not the answer. And I'm worried that even if she does get back together with him, that somehow she's going to feel like he's going to be instrumental in her getting better. And it's so much more important right now for her to get her shit together. Um, and not you know, just for him, not just to get her shit no, together. No, 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 for herself. So that, so that she is in a place where she can she can be ready for a relationship. I don't think she's ready to be in a relationship if she's this depressed. Right. And she shouldn't be rushing back to... into it because there's this artificially imposed timeline or deadline because he's moving away in a year. Right. My feeling when people have these artificially imposed timelines is that if you are supposed to be together, you will be together. If you want to be together, you will find a way to be together. I don't know how much he wants to be with her. And I know that's hard to hear, Mm -hmm. but I think that if he really wanted to be with her, he might have stuck it out a little bit more. And I don't think he would be moving. Yeah, we never, we, we, we infrequently control, I think our egos don't let us control for the comforting white lie. People will hear it's not you, it's me and believe it, right? When it's almost oh, always you, they're just trying to be nice. I'm not ready to date right now. I'm not in a place where I can date right now. I'm too busy with school or work or whatever to date right now. And they're just, they don't want to date you, but they don't want to say that because they don't want to hurt you even more than they're already hurting you by dumping you. They don't want to salt the wound they just opened up. And it's entirely possible that he said, you know, if in some time down the road you have your shit back together and you're still single then and I'm still single then, maybe we can get – that might have been a white lie. That might have been him offering some comfort that then, unfortunately, the way our egos process some comfort turned into false hope. Right. She she glommed on to that one statement and I think that sometimes it was selective hearing where she didn't hear everything else that he was saying. So you know, he might have said 10 other things that were about how he didn't want to be with her. And then there was that little, you know, kind of nugget of hope 
that she was glomming onto, and that's what she's focusing on, and she really needs to focus on herself right now. Let's cheer her up. We, we've said some depressing things to someone who's been struggling uh, with getting their shit together, struggling with depression uh, and withdrawing. Now let's buck her up a little bit, shall we? Yeah, well, I think there's so many positive things going on here that are unrelated to this boyfriend. So I think that if, if she would stop focusing on the boyfriend and focus on all the positive things that have happened in the last few months with her, that she's back in therapy, she's back on medication, she's just She's trying to figure out, you know, what she's going to do about school and her degree. These are all things that are going to lead her very quickly. The more she focuses on that um, into the kind of relationship that she's going to want to have. So I think that it's very hopeful what's happening with her right now. And I think that going back to the boyfriend is going to set her back as opposed to what she's doing now, which is moving her forward. Right. I think what you should be thinking about is, you know, I'm, repairing myself and I'm doing all these things. I'm getting the help that I need. I'm getting exercise again and feeling more comfortable in my own skin and my body being out there in the world because I want people back in my life. She says she withdrew from family. She withdrew from school. She was sent away by this guy. She wants people, including, you know, a romantic partner back in her life. And she's, you know, the, the romantic partner that she has in her imagination when she thinks about having a romantic partner again is this guy. But she should be thinking a guy, not this guy. Maybe this guy, but some other guy, if not this guy, and likely not this guy. And you may find, caller, once you've got your shit together or well enough together, nobody has their shit entirely together, and you circle back to this guy that you actually don't want him anymore. Right. I, I think she's going to find someone better. Because I think that this guy, clearly, if someone wants to be with you, they're going to move heaven and earth to be with you. I don't know how this guy is with commitment. I don't know how he is Mm -hmm. in the long haul. And I think she's going to find a guy who wants to be with her and her in her entirety, not just her when she's, you know, the best version of herself, but her when she's human. And right now she's going through something very human. And if he didn't want to stick around for that, I think she's going to prepare herself to get ready for somebody who's going to want to be with all of her and not just her when it's convenient. So, Lori, when we have other advice columnists on the show, we always like to give them one question that's kind of slow and right over the plate, right in their wheelhouse, and that was that question for you. Uh, And then we like to have them stick around for one more kind of savage love crazy question. Are you game? Sure, I'm game. Hey, Dan. Uh, Early 30s, straight married woman here. Um, I have a problem, sort of, uh, maybe more of a moral dilemma for you to weigh in on. Uh, So my husband and I moved a few months ago. Uh, It's an older apartment building and it has those frosted old style lift up windows in the bathroom next to the toilet. And from there, you can see directly into the apartment next door. Um, And since we moved in, I've seen my neighbor jerking off like several times. Now, normally, I would just shut my window or maybe make it clear to this guy somehow that he didn't have the privacy he thought he did. But this guy is actually hot. Um, He's got a hot body and like a huge, ridiculous porno-sized dick. Um, He also likes to jerk off like fully nude, facing the bathroom window. So it is quite the show. Last week, he masturbated for 45 minutes. Okay, so I can only assume he doesn't know that I can see him. Um, The window I can see him from is frosted and it's only ever opened a crack. Um, It's also the only apartment window that like faces directly into his apartment. So I'm wondering... Is it creepy and wrong to watch this hot dude jerk off? And am I under some kind of moral obligation to close the window? Or can I just sit back and enjoy the show? All right, Laurie, give it your best shot. So I think that if this guy 
is not using any window coverings, that there's a performative aspect to this for him. Uh So I'm sort of psychoanalyzing him, actually. Um, And I think that he wants to be seen. If somebody doesn't want to be seen, he knows exactly what he's doing. And so if he's putting on a show for you and you want to enjoy it, go right ahead. He's taking a big risk because, you know, she moved into this new apartment. She enjoys this show. If somebody had moved into the apartment and he decided to go for it, hoping they might enjoy the show and they didn't enjoy the show, people have been arrested in their own homes, in their own apartments for masturbating, you know, in front of a window in such a way that they knew or should have known they could be seen. You can be arrested for indecent exposure in your own bathroom if it can be reasonably inferred that you were engaged in a performance and hoped to attract an audience and not necessarily a willing audience because the person across the way whose window faces your window might not have been so happy to see you. Right. Many people would not have the reaction that she's having. They would have a very, very different reaction and they might report him. And I would say the danger for her is that, you know, she's in a relationship too and that she not get so carried away by this that it distracts her from the relationship that she's in. Also a danger to consider is escalation. Yeah. This guy lives next door to you and knows you're watching. Right, absolutely. That that it not it not go, you know, that they not form whatever kind of relationship, whether they actually, you know, meet in person and start having a physical relationship or whether they start having an emotional relationship or whether this just becomes a thing between the two of them that takes her away from the relationship that she's in. Um and and you know, there's the fantasy too that this is so much more exciting for her because she can't have it. Mm-hmm. And um, and she doesn't have to be in it, and she doesn't have to hear about his day, and you know all the sort of drearier things about a relationship. She just gets to so focus he, on he, his massive porn star cock. Right. It's it's all it's all fantasy, um, and her relationship is real, and there are going to be things that are far less exciting about her real relationship than about this guy that she can see through the window. Well, my worst case scenario disorder goes to a much darker place. My concern is, you know, this guy has already demonstrated that he has. No boundaries. This guy's already demonstrated that he doesn't really care how other people feel or think because he should know that some people might not appreciate his show. And so I worry about him showing up at your front door. I worry about him showing even less respect for your boundaries than he's already shown. You know, he performed at the window for you. And luckily enough, your boundaries encompassed that performance that was within your boundaries. But you've sent a signal to him. You sent a signal to him that you welcome his attentions. And maybe this is all he's after. Maybe he just is an exhibitionist. Maybe he likes to be looked at and he likes to do this in this window and he's not a danger. And there are a lot of people out there who just, you know, want to be seen. They don't want to do, they don't, they're not menaces in any other way. But, you know, he could be, you could be inviting attention from somebody who is a predator. You, you could be, but here's the more typical situation with someone like that. He can't be in a real relationship. That's why he does that. This is his way of having some kind of connection, having some kind of thrill, you know, some kind of human contact thrill. That's as close as he can get. So I would doubt that he would want any kind of real interaction with her. I think that he's very much doing this because of some 
issue that he has around intimacy, and I don't think he wants to get real uh, near a real person. That's a, it's weird. We're pathologizing him, each of us, but in very different ways. <laughs> we are. We know nothing about this guy. <laughs> right. I'm rounding him up to could be a rapist, could be Ted Bundy, and you're rounding him up to can't form a human connection. I think there are people out there who are exhibitionists who enjoy showing off in this way, particularly people who work hard on their bodies. She says he's got an amazing body, must be a gym bunny, uh, who you know, our exhibitionists on some level enjoy showing off, enjoy that kind of attention and are also capable of having and sustaining intimate relationships. I don't think those are always mutually exclusive. Although I do agree that that is something that I have seen. Uh, I've encountered in my own personal life. It's something I've seen in some of my callers where they can only be the object. They don't want to be known as a person and an individual. And that ruins the eroticism of the moment for them to be known, that they have a hard time being with someone they would rather be seen by some stranger or strangers. Right. That's what I'm saying, that he couldn't do this in front of a girlfriend. He, he probably wouldn't be able to do it. If he could, he would be doing it in front of his girlfriend. But I don't think that he's capable of having one. That's, that's, that's my, you know, armchair analysis, just hearing the situation. Um, you know, so many people like that, when they, they want the attention of strangers, but they can't deal with people in real life. So I don't think he's a danger to her. I think, if anything, the danger is that she's going to take this fantasy a little bit too far. Lori Gottlieb, psychotherapist, author of the New York Times bestseller, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. Check out her terrific advice column, Dear Therapist, in The Atlantic, where you don't do the therapy thing. You don't do the therapist thing. You actually tell people what to do. Sometimes. (laughs) Thank you for jumping on the phone. It was really great talking with you. Great talking with you, too. Thanks. One thing that I'd like to discuss with Dan and get his opinion on would be how does he feel about gay, lesbian, and transgender people, uh, bisexual, queer people, uh, having the right to self-determination? And what I mean by that is, is it time that our civil rights struggle is fully realized and we have a state for gay, lesbian, and transgender people to uh, migrate to and also to give sanctuary to. I've been thinking about this for a while. I'm a 48-year-old gay man. I've lived in San Francisco for 25 years. And um, I've just recently come to, in the last few years since gay marriage, the idea that we are no longer a type of people that should be reduced to the people that we have sex with, but a people that is more should be considered more of a race of people. And, you know, our destinies have been tied to the Holocaust. And after the Holocaust, our people were, after the concentration camps were freed, our people were locked back up by the Allies. And I think it's time that we should receive reparations for that. And the UN should give us, just like Israel, um, our own nation state. And I know this is a radical idea, and I hope it's one that its time has come. One gay man to another, I kind of want to slap the word reparations out your mouth. African-Americans were subjected to centuries of racist and economic oppression that deprived them of the kind of accumulation of generational wealth that white families benefited from over those same centuries. African-Americans were enslaved. After enslavement, they were subjected to Jim Crow barred from certain professions, denied the benefits of the GI Bill, redlined out of neighborhoods. That's why you can make a just case, and I think a winning case, for reparations for the African-American community. The queer community, gays and lesbians, 
we have not been subjected to generation after generation of economic marginalization because it's not possible to subject us to that kind of economic oppression because we are born into not queer families that are easily identifiable and marginalized. We are born into almost invariably straight families. We are born rich. We are born poor. We are born working class, middle class, upper middle class. And the wealth accumulated by the families into which we are born benefits us. So queer people have not been blocked out of the accumulation of generational wealth over the centuries the way African Americans were. So yeah, no, you can't make an argument that today's queers deserve reparations because after the Second World War, German gay men who'd been imprisoned in concentration camps were sent to prison. No. So please don't ever say that in public ever again. So yeah, don't make a reparations argument for queers. Doesn't hold water. And it actually is an insult to people who deserve reparations. As for a homeland, we got Key West, we got Provincetown, we got San Francisco, we got Atlanta, Chicago, New York City. We're born into all strata of society. We're born into all religious traditions. We're born into all economic classes. Uh, we're randomly distributed throughout the population to segregate ourselves, to remove ourselves, to have our own homeland, I think would be counterproductive. It would be abandoning the queers who are coming up next, the queers who are yet to be born, who won't be born in gay Israel. They'll be born into straight land, are removing ourselves from straight land suggests that there's something straight about straight land when our presence through random distribution through the population proves that there's nothing straight about straight land. But there are just people, some, a small percentage of which are queer. And so all families are either queer or soon to be queer or previously queer. There's nothing straight about straight families. Our presence proves it. There's nothing straight about straight polities because there's no such thing as a straight polity because we exist in every culture and every society. So yeah, I'm sorry. Don't support reparations for queer people. Don't want to live in gay Israel. All right. Before we get to your feedback calls, let's check in on the tweets. Aggressive progressive tweets. Fake Dan Savage is so right. Destination weddings should be illegal. I would support your platform. If you ran for office, hashtag Savage Lovecast. I will never run for office, but if I ever do, it will be on a complete ban of destination weddings platform. Rebecca Sadiq tweets, really wish I discovered at Fake Dan Savage's podcast when I was a young thoughtling, hashtag Savage Lovecast, hashtag many regrets. Well, you're with us now, Rebecca, and that's what matters. And finally, I am Sabrina's complete lack of surprise tweets, just choked on my coffee when Fake Dan Savage mentioned the Duggars in an ad on the Savage Lovecast about maternity clothes. Thanks for mixing evangelical nutjob laughs into my morning and attempting to kill me, Dan. You are welcome. If you want me to read your tweet about the show on a future episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now some listener response calls. Hi, my name is Jill and I'm Congress in response to episode 653, the one that just posted. And I'm calling because there was a woman who was unable to have fantastic sex without weed. And I hear that, but I'm a nurse and I work in healthcare and she could just have use, try using weed lube that does not show up on any tests or anything. I recommend the Velvet Swing variety. Weed lube, it's a thing, it works, it gets that specific region high, feels great. And yeah, it doesn't show up on blood tests. 
Hey, Dan, just calling in response to a woman that phoned in episode 653, the teacher that's worried about going to a sex club. Before I got into my current relationship, I was actually fairly deep into the kink community for many, many years. One thing that I did notice, if she is worried about people finding out who she is, that kind of thing, if she doesn't have any glaringly identifying markings, such as tattoos, scars, that kind of thing, wear a mask. It's totally common and nobody will bat an eye. There's no problem whatsoever about hiding your identity at most of the clubs that I've been to. Most people are perfectly understanding that there's kind of a disconnect between that lifestyle and professional personal lives for most of the reasons that you already mentioned in that call. Hey, Dan. I'm just calling to comment on the woman who's not sure if she should go to her former best friend's wedding. You're telling her to go if it's easy to honor the former relationship, but I just looked at wedding pictures from my wedding from 10 years ago, and there's all these women in there that I don't even know anymore, and most of those friendships didn't last a year past that wedding, and I really wish that those women had just gotten themselves out of my face and not be in my wedding pictures right now. So if she knows that she doesn't want to be friends with this woman going forward, think about the wedding pictures she's going to have to look at forever and just make sure she's not in them. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. And also remember to tweet at us on the Twitter using the hashtag Savage Lovecast. Hump, my dirty little porn film festival, is going to be in Pittsburgh and Minneapolis this week. So go to humpfilmfest.com to get your tickets. And I will be in Seattle this weekend for Savage Love Live at the Egyptian Theater with my very special guests, Rachel Lark and trans comedian Karina Lucas. Go to savagelovecast.com slash events to grab a ticket. And a big thank you to Andrew and Kat for the terrific Second Opinion theme song. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Lori Gottlieb on Twitter at LoriGottlieb1. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian. And me and the tech-savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy, we will all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.